You are listening to Live Feisty Media's If We Were Riding. I'm Sarah Gross. And I'm Kelly O'Mara. your week been so far it's been a little crazy my husband broke his wrist my cat needed surgery and i'm still like recovering from the doctor so it's been nuts wow that's that's a lot of stuff it's a lot of stuff (laughs) it's a lot of stuff um well i also had a trip to the vet this week my running partner is lame the poor guy has a tendon that is out in his paw so but dogs run through that. Like maybe we should learn something from them. Or not. That sounds like a thing you should not run not through. Run through. <laughs> I'm forcing him to rest. Good. Good. So last week we talked about sponsorship. Um, and I wanted to tell you that I, this is the first time this has ever happened. I got rejected from a sponsor that I didn't even ask for. That's what I'm looking for in life. Like rejection that I'm not even seeking. <laughs> right it's like I just needed a little bit of extra rejection so yeah that was really weird I they didn't just email you out of the blue to let you know they didn't want to sponsor you (laughs) well at first it seemed like that I actually got this email this morning and it was a rejection from a running shoe company for a sponsorship application and I'm like what like I'm not even a professional athlete anymore I was not applying for sponsorships like what is going on and then I realized that there was some kind of internal breakdown within this company. So I have a friend of a friend who works with this company. And that person had given me a contact name to reach out to to ask about advertising for one of the Live Feisty podcasts. And so I think that there was some kind of internal miscommunication. And my correspondence with this woman got dumped into some kind of sponsorship pile and I got rejected from their ambassador team. <laughs> good. Good. We do not want you, Sarah. FYI. <laughs> yes. Um, so in the newsletter, which we in got, the newsletter. In the newsletter this week. Mm-hmm. Which we told everybody that we would be launching the podcast. So hello, newsletter readers. Hello. Thank you for joining us. Hello. And we are gonna and- talk about the things that we said we'd talk about. Right. We promised. So in the newsletter, I was talking some about, you know, the process for going pro, which I'm putting in quotation or verbal quotations. And I was discussing how the fact that fewer women upgrade to elite slash pro than men do of like similar ability, which is something you and I have talked about before. And we like know this to be true for a number of reasons, which we can go into. But because there are fewer women in the pro fields, then I hear a lot of times a lot of side eye and side eye and shade about like, oh, it's easier to be a female pro. And I'm like, guys, guys, <laughs> it's not like that much easier. <laughs> first off. But I did promise that we were going to elaborate. So, right. So I think, elaborate. you know, what people mean when they say it's easier is they they see fields that don't have as many women in them and they see the prize money going equally deep, say to eight or 10 and they then make the assumption that it's easier to get that paycheck. But I would say that's only seeing part of the picture and that it's not actually easier. What would you say? 
Well, on the first end, I think when there are fewer women at the start line, you have to acknowledge the reasons there are fewer women at the start line in the first place, right? It's not just that it was like just fewer people decided to. There were obstacles and challenges, which gets to the point of like why there are fewer women that upgrade in the first place, right? And we know that there are that women come to the sport later. They often like want to have kids then. And there's the whole like motherhood issue that's like wrapped up in performance. And that comes with a lot of societal expectations about like, they feel like they're you know going to be a bad mom. Um, if they, you know, race pro devote their time to that, that they're not going to be like a good wife. There's all kinds of reasons women don't do triathlon in the first place, which are exacerbated when you talk about why they don't want to race pro. Mm-hmm. And then you also talk, there's also like historical access reasons, right? Like why it's harder for women to even, you know, get to that level in the first place. There's all these things like we're only just learning about female training and try like, like on the Iron Woman podcast, how they were talking to Stacey Sims, who's like just doing the first research ever on like female hormone changes in training. I mean, that's an important thing, right? So there's all these like things that are historical contextual reasons why there are fewer women in the first place. Right. Which doesn't make it easier. It makes it like kind of harder. It makes it kind of harder. The bar to participation is higher in the first place. And to your point about Stacey Sims, I mean, it's it blows my mind in a way that she is the first person who's actually doing scientific research on women's hormones and how they relate to training and that she's currently as far as we know the only person doing doing that research so we know all these typically women have been treated as athletes as small men quote unquote and we don't really know yet how to get the best performances out of women so and all of that is just to say that to show the historical context about how hard it is to exceed at sport or how much more difficult it is to exceed as at sport right. as a woman I think one of the points I would make right off the bat is that the qualifying standards to get your elite card as far as I know, are the same for both men and women. They right. are in Canada. I, mean, I, I think that like you guys have time standards. So obviously they're adjusted for like the women versus the men. Ours have changed to being percentages like Australia. You so have we have percentages. Percentage. Yeah, right. we have percent. A percentage behind the winner. Actually, when you talk about the fact then that like a large number of the top age group women don't upgrade, it's actually like, but you have to beat those women in order to qualify for your elite license. It's actually the harder. I mean, we can get mm-hmm. into this. For women then to call, like, which is part of the reason I hear so many women say like, oh, I don't want to upgrade. I don't want to, you know, race pro because I'm not even winning like the age group race. Oh, these women are always beating me or like they want to be winning Kona as an amateur and being like 11th overall before they upgrade, which obviously then actually makes the age group field harder anyway. But that's all that's all related to getting to the start line of the pro field. Once you're there, it's not like the race is easier. No, (laughs) that's certainly true. And then if you're there and you're like in the men's field, there's often large numbers of B and C kind of level pros. So if you're say 10% back of the winner on the run, you are in good company because there's all these other pros around you. But if you're that same person in the women's field, you're A, out there all by yourself and B, just hoping to God that those women who um, who maybe should have upgraded their to pro status in the age group field aren't behind you catching you. <laughs> right? right, which I mean is obviously like when you get, you know, fifth or whatever, you didn't just beat the pro. I mean, you also beat all the people who didn't upgrade to pro that could have, but that's fine. 
it is an interesting race out in the in the pro women's field. I mean, and the pro men's field, which I obviously am not firsthand seeing the pro men's field. But from what I can tell, they are very different races, which isn't to say like one is easier or one's harder, but they are like different races. So to just like judge the women's race by the men's standards and be like, oh, it's easier. They can they can earn a $750 paycheck. Right. Like it may be easier to earn that $750 paycheck like the first time, but that doesn't mean it's like easier to continue down that pipeline. Yeah. I think that the point that I'm hearing is that in a specific race, like if you take a specific moment in time in a race and let's say there's only eight women in the pro field and the prize money goes to eight, but there's 20 guys in that field and the prize money goes to eight, then on that day, yes, it will be easier for a woman who's already in the pro category to get a paycheck. We have to admit that, but in the entire context of what it takes to become a pro as a female athlete and then to exceed in that world, it is not easier in the bigger picture. And so that's what I think some people forget is they want to use these like micro examples, right? Where, you know, I could take a thousand micro examples of how big a challenge it is to actually you know, get out there and race pro in the first place. I think the other thing, though, is like even if it is easier to earn that eighth place paycheck, from what I've seen from the development pipelines, it's harder than to make like the jump from being the mid-level back level pro to the next level, which is like because when you look at statistically the whole field, not even getting into the debate of whether or not it's easier to qualify for Kona, we're not even going to touch that. The fact is that we know that the top women race on average, what is it, like 1.3 more Ironman races per year than the top men in order to get the points to qualify for Kona. Mm-hmm. Which then means you have exponentially more odds that one of those top 20 women at Kona is going to be at your random regional 70.3. Yes. So in order to then get your first podium, which is like a progressive step, you know, you get your first podium, then you get your first win, then you get more podiums. But in order to get those steps, you're going to have to be like Rachel Joyce or Holly Lawrence or Miranda Carfrey. Mm-hmm. The odds are higher that you're going to have to beat one of those level people because they have to go to more races. And because they're that's just like how it is working right now in the system whereas when you look at the guys I, it just seems like there are people with similar ability that then get their first podium their first win faster it's just like a different progression a different way it progresses right the path is different and if we're going to see this in context we need to take into account all the factors and not just one thing like i don't know it doesn't feel easier let's just say that okay another thing to like take an about turn here a little bit but that you talked about in the newsletter is the olympics are coming right the other thing i said we were going to discuss mm-hmm. from the newsletter was the ban on russia mm-hmm. so russia got banned so that's official that's official no russian athletes can compete so the ioc olympic international olympic committee voted on tuesday to ban russia from the games in good korea They are allowing some Russian athletes to petition to compete as neutral athletes. But like the presumption there is that like it's like guilty until proven innocent. Like they have to go out of their way to like prove that they, you know, had nothing to do with like all this other stuff. So I guess we kind of need to go back a little step and talk about why the IOC decided to do this. To me, I I think we should a little bit. To me, the whole story of that it's like an episode of blacklist it's like evil men in russia really control the world (laughs) you know so tell us the story (laughs) so post sochi which was the last winter games a couple major stories came out like there was a german documentary a big new york times story a couple of like whistleblowers who said you know russia has 
systemic state-run, state-sanctioned doping. One of the guys, one of the doping officials from Russia is kind of the key, I guess, witness in all this. And he came forward and detailed some of the ways that they got around doping protocols since he managed the lab in Sochi. He uh, And some of the details were crazy. They were, like, taking out dirty urine from Russian athletes and, like, s- pushing it through wall holes in walls to KGB agents to be swapped out for clean urine inside the Olympic drug testing lab that's supposedly supposed to be, you know, untouchable in these, like, untouchable containers that, like, can't be tampered with. They were making, ne- you know, positives disappear. They were letting some positives stay on the books if the Russian athletes weren't that good. So at least they would, like seem like they were oh, really I hadn't yeah. heard that that they yeah let, like if you didn't podium your positive got through like it's okay yeah. you could be banned you were yeah, off the podium it was a little it was a little that sucks but it was so as more and more information came out over the like the years after Sochi it became I want to say like fairly clear but let's be clear like there wasn't like a court case or anything there's just been a lot of evidence that has come forward to show you know that this happened in like in Sochi and that it goes back before Sochi that Russia has this like very large doping program and so the large scale government large run, scale. I mean, right. government run is like definitely the phrase that is highly in question because obviously like who is like how high up does right. this go and who runs it is obviously like what everyone really wants to know. And the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, then, you know, had their own investigation, which came out relatively recently, like in the last month. And so they, you know, which kind of corroborated a lot of these other like newspaper reports, WADA, the World Anti-Doping Agency did their own report. So there's been a lot of investigation and they're still trying to sort out like who was dirty from Sochi based on all of these reports, you know, taking back medals, taking back results. So that's like its whole own mess. But in the wake of all this, they decided that punitively, like as a punishment for what they did in Sochi, they are banning Russia, which always sounds weird to me because you can't ban a country. It's a place, not a people, but they are banning Russia from these games. They are fining them $15 million and they are specifically banning like some of the high level Russian officials who have been linked, like who have been linked to uh, the program. Like they're never going to be allowed to participate in Olympic stuff again, never going to be allowed to have a role in Olympic officially type things. And so I guess the question now is sort of what happens now. Because now like as of this point, there are going to be no Russian athletes unless they petition individually on a case by case basis. And they're going to have to prove that they essentially, you know, have been tested like crazy, that they have nothing to do with this. I mean, a similar thing happened in Rio, but it wasn't all of Russia that was banned. It went sport by sport. Mm -hmm. And so some athletes did petition in their individual sports. Like, And there's only like seven or eight got through. And they had to like prove, I mean, some of them had to prove they hadn't been to Russia in six years and they, you know, didn't even know anyone in Russia, which at that point, you know, it, it seems a little insane. It seems like we're kind of punishing them for their nationality. Right. And so I'm understanding, I understand the fine. That seems reasonable. I also understand banning officials, banning people who were involved in this. But, and it seems to me that one of your issues with this is that for some of the Russian athletes, it seems like they're guilty by association. So how do we be fair to individual athletes? I mean, obviously... This move has been widely heralded by everybody in like the U.S. and Canada, like the Western media as being like a hard step against doping and that it is the only way to be fair to the clean athletes who are out there who aren't Russian. You know, we can't like allow dirty athletes to participate. 
I have some issues with this like decision. It is unprecedented in the history of the Olympics. Like there have been countries that have been banned before, but it was always for political issues, like you know South uh, South Africa for apartheid, um, stuff like that. Typically, doping like falls under the realm of like the rules of the games, and if an individual violates those rules, an individual is banned. Right? We go like person by person. So I have no problem with finding the country for their pro- like for what they did wrong. I have no problem with banning individual officials who have been shown to be responsible. I have no problem with like we going through athlete by athlete and from Sochi and like banning the ones that were dirty um, or, you know, giving them some X number year ban, whatever. I have a problem with why like wide sweat weeping, banning all Russian athletes as if they had anything to do with this, right? It goes against the very nature of the Olympics, which is the idea that we're not going to judge people on their nationality. We're not going to like judge them on what other people in their country have done. We're not going to punish, you know, some Russians because other Russians have like made us angry. The Olympics are supposed to, as long as you individually have followed the rules of the games, you get to compete. That's supposed to be how it works. Right. And so it'll be interesting to see what happens now. I mean, they've decided, Mm -hmm. right? So it's going to be interesting to see how stringent they are for these athletes who might be able to compete under a neutral flag. Are we going to have hundreds of athletes in that category or is it just going to be a few? So I guess that's yet to be seen. It's yet to be seen. I also think there's within Russia, the light way to put this would be like, it's not going over well, uh, the decision. (laughs) I guess not. I know. And so they're pretty pissed and there's certainly talk about, you know, boycotting across the board you know that no one will petition that obviously the winter games are a big deal for russian athletes you know they are dominant in the figure skating the top like three rush are russian females um cross-country skiing they're huge so i just i don't know it, it's gonna be a crazy a crazy olympics without russia and a crazy olympics if they come too So back to triathlon for a second, Kelly. (laughs) (laughs) In the newsletter, we also, you also talked about Holly Lawrence and her two posts on Instagram recently about why she felt she did so poorly at the world championships. And she was, they were very, the posts, if anyone hasn't seen them, go back and check out Holly's Instagram. The posts were very raw and honest about the pressure that she felt as defending champion. Yeah, they were. They were also pretty, um, honest about kind of how she got into a a disordered eating let's call it whole under the weight of those uh expectations she kind of said you know she had been injured she was trying to come back really quickly and ended up kind of trying to lose a lot of weight thinking it would make her faster which didn't go well no it didn't work out it rarely goes well and i think i always appreciate those kind of posts where a champion like that is being really honest about her body image and the fact that she doesn't feel good enough. I think a lot of people relate to that. Um, And also a lot of people would have never thought weight would be an issue for someone like Holly Lawrence. So it's interesting to get an insight to that. It did feel a little, I don't, I would like to be in her head because she did also say she's always been bigger for a triathlete and I want to know where she's getting, she's smaller than me and I'm smaller than you and Mm -hmm. I don't feel huge and I don't think you're huge. So I don't know where she's getting this from. If people are telling her that, if she believes that, if she struggles with the same kind of body image issues, it seems like a lot of women struggle with. Yeah. The one thing I really related to is when she said people started to say to her, she was looking fit and she was looking good as she got smaller. I think I've been in a lot of situations where coaches or people 
well-meaning people have said that in situations where actually I've been too lean. And I had a similar, you mentioned Miranda Carfrey at her world championship, me on a lesser level, um, not going for the win, but certainly going after like a top 10 or top 20 in Kona and coming in too skinny and not even finishing the race. I've definitely done that. I'm going to, I'm going to say that's why I DNF'd my race this year too. I don't, (laughs) FYI, I was too skinny. That's probably it. (laughs) That's probably it. If you can't find a better reason. That's it. Also, well, this is episode two of If We Were Riding. Join Kelly and I every week on Friday right here and get the newsletter. Sign up at ifwewereriding.com. We are also on social media, so you can find us at If We Were Riding on both Instagram and Twitter. And we will be back next week with more. My time, my time. None of you people can tell me to stop this time like the last time. You better get ready to race to the top. If We Were Riding is a live feisty media production and is hosted by myself, Sarah Gross, and Kelly O'Mara. We want to thank our producer, Helen Rossiter, and our awesome editor, Aaron Hamilton. If you want to get a hold of us to tell us how awesome we are, or to send us some constructive criticism, or to tell us how much you love our music, just fire us an email at ifwewereriding at gmail.com. Lower the lights down, hand over my crown, hand over my heart, I do this for my town, I do this for my crown, so turn me your real life. Before we go, I have a, I have a story from Iran I wanted to share. Always good. I love it when <laughs> I love it when Twitter meets the Middle East meets sports meets chaos, basically. So in Iran, uh, in 2014, when they had the FIFA, they had like a FIFA World Cup draw game. A reporter from Brazil came to cover to do the television coverage with her Iranian counterpart, and apparently she was too scantily clad that the Iranians deemed her unworthy of being on television and so they cut out all of the parts that this Brazilian woman was in and so the fans in Iran like only got to watch half the game so this time around they took to Twitter there's a Russian correspondent coming to cover the game of Russian versus Iran and she's called Maria Komandnaya or some pronunciation of that (laughs) or something Um, (laughs) anyway they took to Twitter to ask Maria to um dress modestly so that they get to watch the entire football slash soccer game happening in their country. And Maria, apparently Maria's dress passed the test and uh, the Iranians could watch their, their football heroes. I suppose they could also have asked the, they have taken to Twitter to ask the Iranian government to, you know, get over themselves, but that's, that's also an option, right? Another day, Iran, another another day. day.